and welcome to Pop the Left. And today we have PH Higgins playing the part of me while I play the part of Doug Lane here on Pop the Left. Um, so that's going to be interesting. Uh, I guess you could scream at me to, you know, get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get, I'm always uh, less confrontational. Um, <laughs> um to uh, get the the authenticity of be me, and I I will uh, ramble a lot. So um, we're talking about uh, for the for the for Pop the Left today. We're talking about the first international, and then for the parrot room, just as a little preview, we're going to talk about how um, Aparismo and Autonomia in the seventies could never really get a handle on what to do about its worker situation in Italy, and how. That's kind of like now, but maybe now's worse because that's usually how these conversations go. So, although you might surprise me, maybe maybe the seventies truly were awful, and well, they were. So, yeah, but, but now we now we take a trip back to the eighteen seventies, actually the eighteen sixties, um, and the eighteen seventies too. The International Working Men's Association are the first international. Um, and I find that there's a lot of mythology around the first international. I mean, there's obviously the Bakun and Mark split, but there's also the, the Blankeus tensions. There's the fact that Marx was actually trying to maintain a coalition that was mostly what we would consider like British moderate socialists, like proto Fabians almost. Um, so would you like to talk about the context of the first international and why it mattered at all? Uh, well, there's a lot that goes on with the first international and yeah, it, it's mythologized a lot into binaries and simple kind of, narratives about what what was so good about it or what was so bad about it um but i think that what's particularly interesting and useful to look at the first international with is that it's it's, it's a concerted attempt to build an international in the wake of you know the 1848 kind of uh situation there's so there's the rise of nationalism uh in europe there's uh, large immigrant populations, and then there's a, a bubbling melting pot of like national conservatism, Republican liberalism, and the early forms of socialism in, in a variety of forms. Like you mentioned, there's the Blanquist um, kind that is sort of the arguably one of the most direct descendants of like kind of French Revolution, like communist kind of ideals it's uh, you know secret societies and kind of early vanguardist idea that will you know you'll, you'll go and take over the reins of the state at, uh, with the, the popular uprising and then the, the kind of enlightened uh socialist dictators will like sort of lead the way um and then there's the start of the kind of anarchist socialist movement and and the democratic socialists and whatnot so it, it's interesting to look at what's going on with all these different features and it's interesting to look at the roadblocks that occur because the International Working Men's Association, particularly in, in Europe, is, is having Marx and Engels are, are mostly operating in London, but they have roots in France and there's, you know, uh, attempts to build a party there. They, this is kind of where they connect with Liebknecht and Babel and start uh, operations in Germany that later become the uh, Socialist, uh, the Democratic Socialist Party. Uh, Although it's important Germany. to point out that the faction that is the basis of the of the SPD is explicitly not in the international. So, like the all yeah. the all German Workers Association or Workers League, or however you want to translate that, um, is is kept out of the international mm -hmm. because because LaSalle sees his Marxism as a nationalist project. Yeah, the 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 kind of emergence of the SPD in Germany is interesting because it's sort of a convergence of um, two parties, one of which the larger one is LaSalle's. And then there's the, um, uh, I think it's Liebknecht and Babel have like their own kind of 
side thing that's a little bit smaller that they kind of end up operating together with. Um, and then and then there's Italy and Italy, you know, Italy is the kind of big stumbling bar block for Marx and Engels. It's where they look the most idiotic in their understanding of the political situation. And it's where Bakunin uh, re really thrives. Oh, that and, and some of the stuff that goes on in Switzerland. But, um, you know, it, Italy is particularly interesting because it's situation is uh, like always italy is just a mess it's super regionalized you know there's these republican nationalist movements that want to unify italy for the first time because it's mostly a, a select group of you know the italian kingdoms it's not italy until like 1860 and then it still kind of expands into the papal regions and stuff um and it, it it's interesting to see just kind of angles in particular is really really idiotic in his treatment of Italy. And it's, uh, but it's also interesting to look at what the anarchists are doing and what was useful about their approach, but also maybe where they are over, also figures that are over romanticized in terms of the effectiveness of what they were doing or how different some of the stuff they were doing was. Like I've seen people who are actual, you know, like anarchist historians be like, yeah, at the end of the day, they were kind of just a political party. Like that's what the Italian international was. It it wasn't an a legalist, like entryist political party, but its its orientation was more political than in in and of itself being the the locus of organizing. The organizing was usually happening more from kind of just workplace, um, well, like artisan co-ops and group things of their own, which the anarchist international kind of layered on top of with political intentions. Um, so, so it's a, it's a really interesting kind of milieu to look at. And I think it's interesting, especially when we go into the second part of this conversation about like social movements, because this is a period, Habsbaum is particularly good on this. Like this is a period where it's really easy, I think for modern people to forget that Marx and Engels are sometimes too prophetic for their own good when you forget that like when they're talking about the working class and the proletariat a lot of that is like freed landless peasants that are going into city urban cities it's you know uh, artisans and and works like there's not like a big industry proletariat as we think of it like outside of i mean marx, yeah. marx almost doesn't really i mean he sees that somewhat in england yeah but he doesn't even really see like proper giant like big industry um and like that uh, jairus Benaji is pretty good on talking about this and in his merchant capital stuff like angles is really the only one that sees that after marx's death like in, in its full extent as we think of like the the proper like you know big machinery industrialization um he even though it, marx sees more of the assembly line style uh, not, not like fordist assembly line but the more of the like mass craft like textile industries and stuff that are happening i mean um, it's interesting how much in 1848 in the manifesto and in ingles's um socialist or communist catechism um that is the basis for that particularly in that like they the predictions of the industrial revolution and proletariat is made much more explicit than in any other place um so much so that Marx actually kind of refines, like pulls a lot of that out because it makes it seem like it's it, the industrial capital's problem, not capital's problem in general. But it, it, it is interesting to think about that in the context of even by 1910, like when Bernstein's really doing his revisions, like the proletariat or even the, even the working class as a whole is only like in, in Germany and, in France, like 30 to 40% of the population at absolute most. Um, so, and that's almost, you know, that's, that's like a, that's a generation and a half later. So it's, it is interesting how prescient they are on that, but also how confusing that kind of is when we think about how this all started. Let's backtrack a minute though. Cause I, I do think we need to talk about the origins of the international because it is kind of, it's not who you think it is. Actually, like the the initial movement, um, so 
you know, 20 years later, we're still dealing with the fallout of 1848, and it's particularly bad in Poland, right? Like, um, there's strong repressions going on in Poland, and I think it is uh, in 1864, so you're, you're, what, 16 years out, and... Um, uh, there is a a labor meeting held uh, by two um, French, I believe they're French. I think believe they're both French organizers in St. James Meeting Hall um, to celebrate the Polish uprising um, in 1863, right? Mm-hmm. And that becomes the basis in 1864 when they say they're going to commemorate it again for the international, but who's the leaders are interesting. So like the, the beginning of the international, the movements are Owenites who are kind of utopian socialists that were even popular in the United States. Um, they were big on, um, you know, the co-op movement basically. And like, you know, uh, Owen kind of inspires like arts and craftsy yeah. movement stuff. And he's very, I mean, he's like the most, you know, th- there's some confusion, I think, in terms of like when we talk about like utopian socialism, like what the utopian portion of that means. But Owen is kind of the most like typically, ut- like, you know, it's a, it's going to be this amazing paradise with like technical solutions for everything and it will all like he, he's almost technocratic in certain kind of yeah it, uh, it's, solutions he imagines. It's uh it's he's technocratic. He also talks about fair uh, fair exchange, just prices, and a right to charity. He talks and, about the moral economy. Actually, though, I mean, it, it is amazing how much of Owenite like uh, frameworks are still used in the anglophone left in America and the UK. Like mm-hmm. it like the like fair trade. That's that starts with Owen. Um you know I mean um, what didn't he I, I I might be confusing him with one, another one, but I think is Owen the one who basically had like inherited businesses or something and he would just like intentionally be like I'm going to make the conditions as good as possible. And like educate my workers. Yeah, and um, then let and like, them run it. So we didn't. Yeah, we we'd um, have ideal conditions. He's kind of like the uh, the benevolent, you know, uh, co-op capitalist. Like I'm yeah. going to set all this up, train everybody to do it, and then I'm just going to let them run it for themselves. And we'll use this as a basis for a new society. I mean, and it's we're kind of making fun of it, but it it was. I mean, it's impressive to see someone do that at the time. Like it's like. Well, By whole, no means, like there were whole communities established in the United States based off of it. I mean, the, the biggest yeah. one is New Harmony, Indiana. Like, so it was like Owensism and Fortierism were incredibly popular even in the U.S. Like, so that's a big that's that's basically that in the in the very beginnings of the labor movement are the British side of that, and the French side is Proudhon and Blanqui and. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and their factions, which you talked about, but what's, what's even more fascinating is like the person who they elect to be the chair. So we think about this as the working man's association. And of course there's no egghead leftist in it, but the chair of, of the first international, um, is Edward Spencer Beasley, who is a university of London professor. Like, um, and then, um, and then like the, the secretary, uh, is George Odger, Odger. Odger. Yeah. Who, who is actually a labor person. So you see, even in the beginning, like this, this, uh, academic liberal with labor coalition in the first international. So there are things that we don't think about that. We, st- we think are more modern phenomena that we see in the origins of the, of the international working men's association. Um, and Marx and Ingalls are kind of not late comers, but they're not early comers either. 
and they're kind of more aligned with the and the group that we haven't talked about yet the the chartist or the chart you know the chartist movement mm -hmm. so and they come out of wales and yorkshire and marx and Engels kind of glom on with them yeah i mean i think it's interesting to look at because i mean marx and Engels basically get elected to a subcommittee mm -hmm. to like develop programs and you know like principles and that's kind of where all the controversy comes from with Akunin is because they start trying to develop what they think should be the right program that other people don't want and particularly things about like uh election political party kind of uh topics is is what causes a lot of the controversy but there's a really good piece i can't imagine remember it off the top of my head i think it might be in the there's a collection from brill and i can't it, it's not workers of the world it might be called a risey wretched um and it's like a collection of essays about the first international and like it, it's really good it goes over you know all the like different regions and and topics and stuff and and i believe it's one of the only things that every chapter in it is for free on the brill website um and it's not historical materialism it's in one of their other lines but um there's a really good piece that talks about how i think it's it, it with, with with marx and Engels getting on the subcommittee part of what's going on is like they are influential figures to some extent in germany because of their their writing in the uh i can't remember the long german name the newspaper the uh, zeitung um mm. they they were in 1840 with 1848 stuff uh they've been in paris uh but at the same time they're not really at this point you know like these figures with this big vision for communism that is distinct you know they're not necessarily standing out to that extent and so part of the whole thing with them getting elected to the subcommittee is they're using that as an attempt to try and hash out their political program and and define their political vision of communism in a way that is distinct from these other other tendencies there so yeah it's important i think to realize that they're kind of they're not entirely green behind the ears because like i said you know they've done stuff on the continent but they're they're setting out in that moment to try and really distinguish themselves in, in a way that's like, it's not like, Oh, old dusty marks and angles. You, everyone knows what they're about. It's like, no, like that's like, they're trying to say what they're about at that time. Right. I mean, um, there's a reason why, for example, Ferdinand LaSalle thought he was a Marxist because so much of Marxist, so much of Marxist doctrines weren't even fully articulated yet. I mean, like it's, it's something that we've, we forget, but, we tend to, it's like reading the Bible. Like we read the manifesto knowing what we know from critique of the Goethe program, from capital volume one through three, from the, you know, the polemical writings. Um, but I think the polemical writings, Marxist, uh, Marx's newspaper work and capital volume one, which had not sold well, I think. We got to make sure I got my timeline right on that. Um, so, do you think Capital Volume One came out before the, the International? Um, I think it comes out through. It comes year. out at the very beginning of the International, so it, it's released in in 1867, and so the International starts in 1866. But he wrote it prior to the International, so even that isn't fully out yet. Mm -hmm. And they'd also refine doctrine. I mean, like, uh, when I did the pop the left on the manifesto, I talked about how, like, the the manifesto that we had that where Marx tries to predict what the Communist League had agreed to, and then the actual demands they agree to, like, a day later when they have the Congress, they're slightly different, and Marx is a slightly more radical. But if you were to read those and then look at Critique of the Goethe Program or even stuff he says in the Brumaire or the civil war in France, you're like, is this, th this doesn't seem like the same political program. So stuff has mm -hmm. developed significantly, not so much in their overarching framework, but in how they think you achieve it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting to think about like, in terms of the way, I, I mean, it's kind of mind blowing sometimes when you think about how some of these things managed to just get translated and circulated across Europe as broadly as they did. But 
some of like the conflicts that happen, you know, the, the Communist Manifesto is translated into Italian fairly late um, when the conflict with Bakunin is really happening. So the manifesto gets translated and, and that becomes a moment when Caffieri, who is actually the person that is aligned with Engels that goes into Italy. And then because Engels and Marx are constantly attacking Bakunin and Caffieri is like, Bakunin's doing good work in Italy. He turns and joins the Bakunin anarchist fashion. Um, but he, he gets an Italian copy of the Communist Manifesto and he goes, what is this dictator of the proletariat stuff and, and freaks out. And that's during the time. Uh, and, and he's looking, he's like, this is all, you know, electoralist. It's all based around you know, participation demands for, for suffrage and things. And it's at the time when, you know, Marx and Engels are writing the preface to say in the new German edition saying like, these are the things that are out of date with what we were thinking at the time. And, and it's also interesting to uh, the manifesto in particular, like, when it circulated, there were times where it got circulated and no one knew who wrote it. And it was attributed to other people. Um, well, I mean, that's uh, the I, problem with early Marx scholarship before MAGA 1 and uh, MAGA 1 and 2 works, right? Because so much of the the polemical work and the journalism was unsigned. I mean, for example, there are a lot of people for a long time who attributed uh, anti-Semitic screeds to Marx mm -hmm. because they were in the same newspaper and they were unsigned. And you had like people did um, would have to do like literary analysis to compare word uses and stuff to clear Marx's name, um, and so I mean that that's it, it is interesting because we tend to we we tend to frame this in this giant battle between Bakunin and uh, Marx and Engels, which it does eventually kind of become, which also becomes Marx and Engels is. Uh, Roadmap for how to deal with LaSalle with LaSalleans. LaSalle's already dead, but with, with LaSalleans when, when the SPD forms. Um, but uh, in the beginning, it, it looks like the fights between like the Owenites and like the Blanquists hmm. and Proudhon. Yeah, and Proudhon. Marx really and, attacks Proudhon very harshly early on. Yeah, and a lot and deeply. Um, and he more he does more or less win that, and he wins that partly politically by using his language of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which he had gotten from Blanqui, to kind of like split the baby effectively, mm -hmm. to be like, oh, we mean the same thing as Blanqui's dictatorship of the proletariat, but instead of like, you know, a revolutionary cadre dictatorship, it's mm -hmm. all the proletariat acting dicta uh, acting as dictator as a class, yeah, which is like. You know, um, which is a, an interesting concept, foundational to communism, super kind of important for Marx's Engels political development, but also you sometimes wish they'd use better terminology. Like, yeah, because Hal Draper, even when he wrote in his book on the dictatorship of proletariat for Marx to Engels, I mean, for Marx to Lenin, um, he does talk about how uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat. In Marx, the word dictatorship actually does have some of the connotations that we mean with it now, some of the connotations of the ancient Roman sus suspension for emergency, and then some of the connotations of like, well, you know, capitalism is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie because they dominate production. Um, and Dick Prol kind of confuses all three things. Um but that is used to keep the Blanquist on board, particularly when they're fighting the mutualists. Um, but it's even funny because the Blanquists are, you know, they're kind of the first ultras, right? Like, you know, they show up to the Geneva Convention in, in 1866 and denounce the French, the French delegates as, as uh, secret emissaries of Louis Napoleon. I mean, like... It's the kind of stuff that you would expect from like 60s and 70s, you know, sectarian hijinks. So we're not, I bring that up because we're not as removed from the modern left in some ways as we think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it is, I, I kind of hold that I mean, recently the Second International has become kind of like the big debate because of. I mean, it's kind of fell off, but for a while with the whole 
Marxist Center and DSA stuff. And, and right now there's like the Marxist Unity Caucus or whatever it is. Unity um, platform, I think. Yeah, there, there, there's this big kind of like, you know, like the Kautsky and argument, like the second international is the part that we have to really look at, um, which I think might have some legitimacy in terms of asking questions about electoralism. But I think that in terms of, I mean, I'm not one of those people that really likes the whole like, history is about learning the mistakes so that you can avoid them. I think that's kind of a BS, like, like, a true, like a little, like nice little phrase for historian professors when you're doing your 101 class. But like, um, I think that there's something a little bit more interesting looking at the first international and just how fucking hard it is to like parse through, you know, how they're trying to build this movement in an international fashion this early and, on um, and, and, this and, movement and is actually huge. having international connections when they're doing it. And this movement is huge, but it also needs to be put in the perspective of, it actually isn't rising out of a time when the workers movement in Europe is particularly beaten down. I mean, like they've had in some cases, 10 to 15 years of getting their asses kicked uh, by the, by like um, the Metternich reaction and and all that and then they're kind of sidelined in the nascent nationalist movements too because uh in most of the left national the left nationalist movements of the or the maybe better say the liberal nationalist movements of the 1860s um the moderate factions are the ones that tend to win out and they make concessions to monarchy and concessions to labor suppression under the guise of, of national consolidation. Um, so the international, which it's huge. It, it's like the, uh, the police estimates estimates put it at 5 million people. Although they think that the police are actually probably uh, um, maybe underselling it. The, the international itself says it has 8 million. Um, what org internationally, outside of, say, maybe the PRC, where you know, you're dealing with populations of billions, has 8 million people at a time when the global population is like, what, like a fifth of what it is now? If, if that? Yeah, like, that's I mean, huge. It's... And it's it's interesting to look at like the the capacity for these kind of early organizing efforts, where again, like in, in some in a place like Germany, most of like the working class that are radicalizing, a lot of them are like at least within a younger generation that's not like veterans from forty eight are like journeymen. They're people that are tied to. Uh, mastercraft like guild systems that don't own their own tools but are, are connected to workshops um and and you have systems of like and, and the capacity especially in, in germany you know like there's these efforts to to publicly engage in, in things like Liebknecht talks about how it, it where especially in the areas where he's most successful it's like very built around going out and giving speeches and, and circulating things and, 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 and building um, interest among things like that, especially because in Germany, um, there's a kind of liberal conservative movement of kind of patronage or like uh, self-help associations. And, and, and the first international uh, concept of kind of emancipation is really appealing to a lot of people because it's all about like our organization, you know, members choose their own leadership and it's not about this patronage system where the liberal conservative like statesmen and and um and you know the the bourgeoisie are still kind of tied to like landed and and more aristocratic interests at this time you know it's not about them handing down welfare things to you through this self-help organization that's about you know lifting you out of your your misery and being a good hard worker and you know like that message is very very appealing um, in that context. And then in Italy, um, you have a, a situation again, where there's a lot of landed, uh, a lot of, uh, craftspeople. And then there's also a huge influx of, uh, 
people who used to be peasants and and now are are, are no longer have access to the land except as day laborers, um, especially in the south where there there's lot, like latifundia estates exist in Italy up to like the 1950s. They lose most of their importance by 1900 for the the major Italian economy, but they're like a big thing in Sicily and in the southern regions. Um, so when when people talk about how southern Italy at this time is you know like all like very agrarian and peasant based, that's true, but it's also very urbanized. Like the peasants are massing in these giant cities and then they go out and do agricultural work and then they go back to the city. They're not like, I mean, I mean, there are like, you know, people that are in villages and stuff, but it, it's not just peasants in the sense of like little village peasants that live on their plot of land. Um, and that's why there's also this big connection. Uh, I, I think that one of the things that's very important with this is thinking through how big emigration is at this time and what it means that people are traveling on a very mass scale and it, and it's twofold because one that be, becomes a big part of connecting international uh, building the international but on the other hand emigration is constantly one of the problems for like do i go and do radical work or do i just try and leave and go somewhere else it's I like mean, a really of, big problem in terms of thinking about when people choose the radical option and when they don't with the amount of immigrants from italy and from uh and from germany after the 1860s before the establishment of the nations is huge i mean they're a huge mm -hmm. part of uh, the united states um and they're also the italians are not particularly welcome the anarchist movement in particular is associated with Frankly, what I consider the first Red Scare, which people don't mention, and then the first official Red Scare is actually aimed at anarchist, um, the one around McKinley. Um, but they even play a big role in the Civil War. Um, the International is writing letters to, to the United States and doing articles during the Civil War, supporting the North. I mean, there's That's that not one guy, I can't remember his name, who was like who knew Marx and like mm -hmm. went and became a union general and stuff. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, so th th there, there's a lot of that. Um, but you're right between the Napoleonic wars and which are, um, and the reaction in the reaction of 1848, there is this massive movement of peoples. Um, it's, it's kind of huge. And also kind of the beginning, I mean, it is also the beginning of most of the ethnic tensions that we see that plague the early 20th century Europe actually kind of do come to full headway. I mean, yes, some of them have traditions that go back thousands of years, but they really don't get codified until this time period. And so the international is cutting against that at a time where it doesn't make a lot of sense. And another thing that to a lot of outsiders and another thing that it doesn't that people have trouble understanding entirely is that even for Marx, um, you know, during 1848, because of the presence of these large, abs you know, semi-absolutist feudal holdover states like the Habsburgs, um, mostly the Habsburgs, um, it's uh, the, the Russian Empire is another one. It's... Uh, it's really hard to 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 try to see how any of these movies are gonna any of these movements are gonna work without nationalism. I mean, that's why like mm -hmm. Wagner, like Wagner, Bakunin, and Ingalls are all very near each other on the firing line at one point, like yeah. during eighteen forty eight. Marx, Marx, uh, Bakunin's always gonna give Marx shit because Marx didn't end up fighting and Ingalls did. Um, but it's it's one of these things that I, that is kind of hard to grasp because the Marxist position on 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 nations and nationalism isn't isn't entirely settled yet. This is actually the hints of what settles it. You know, um, I mean that, and uh, obviously the workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains in the manifesto. But as for actual policy, this is when this all begins to hash out. So it is ironic, for example, that the base of the S. Pay Day is from the faction of German workers who were kept out, well, 
really Prussian workers at this time period, who are kept out of the international. I mean, it's one of the ironies of history. But I, you said something interesting that I think a lot of people are going to want you to expand on. You said the Engels acted particularly idiotically in, in, in regards to Italy. Can you go into why? What did, what did Engels do that really complicated the situation there? And why was Bakunin so effective other than his ties to Garibaldi? Um, well, that's... So like I mentioned, there's this guy called Caffiari. And Caffiari mm. uh, goes to London. I think he, I think he meets Engels in London and becomes like very like, yeah, this guy, like these guys know what they're doing. And he kind of becomes the Italian correspondent for the subcommittee of Marx and Engels. And during this period, Engels is really, really, really pushing the whole like Bakunin is, you know, he, he's acting in his own self-interest. He's attacking the well-being of the international. He's going to like stage this interior coup. Um, and, and, and the thing is, is that there's, Bakunin does have, I, I, I know even anarchist scholars who will say like Bakunin does have this vision of secret society stuff that tends to become kind of damaging over time and especially well, I mean, when it to Italy. Um, it, 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 it's very complicated and like sometimes it's overstated, but other times it's not quite as overstated because he does it actually with a lot of different like attempts over time and it's hard to know like some time in some periods Bakunin it seems like it's like this one was kind of like a hypothetical thing that he wanted but never did these ones were organizations that he did lead but they're very small and insular and like were, were planning insurrections that didn't work and stuff like that but um so so Caffieri is actually in Italy and he's seeing Bakunin and Bakunin is in Italy and kind of really kicks off a lot of the international, you know, the, the international section in Italy. Um, and so he's kind of sitting there being like, Engels, the radical people that are interested in the international in Italy, a lot of them are going to take Bakunin as their touchstone for what the international is. Um, and when you're doing all this stuff, people don't get why. Like they like so they just see some dude who's high up in the international smearing like the the local figure that they all know through like from their their organization. Um, and right, and, and like Sergey Nekyev, for example, who Bakunin endorses, where it's really a damn totalitarian mess hasn't happened yet, right? Like yeah. Um, and, and like Bakunin kicks off in Italy, he kind of starts, I believe he starts organizing with, because Italy is already a mess of like secret societies and stuff because of the way that the Republican movement happens. And again, because of like the regionalized kingdom system. Um, and, and Bakunin kind of starts out associating with sort of like semi-radical Freemason lodges and some of the Mazzinian and Garibaldian movements, which are, you know, Mazzini and Garibaldi are both these kind of like Republican heroes who, you know, they fight for the unification and creation of a national Italy. Um, and one of the things that really gets Bakunin a lot of acclaim is that when the French, uh, when the Paris Commune happens, Bakunin, you know, supports it all out. Garibaldi uh, supports the French Republicans against the, uh, the Prussian and Austrians um, in the war. So Garibaldi is like kind of more sympathetic to it. Mazzini hates it because Mazzini is like very, very, very much like Italy first. He thinks that Napoleon and, and, and France, it's, it's totally failed at being properly Republican. He's staunchly in favor of like Catholicism. So he, he hates the idea of the Fr Paris Commune being this materialist, atheist expression of you know all this stuff and and Mazzini doesn't really realize that there's like a newer generation of people that don't really care about the stuff that he cares about so Bakunin gains kind of a big following early on by being like Mazzini is a hypocrite he he's totally out of touch with what's going on right now he supports the French you know Bakunin supports the Paris Commune like that gets him a lot of street cred with the younger kind of 
radical sympathetic people in Italy. Um, and then, so then there's like stuff going on with Engels and when the kind of split starts to happen, Engels writes a couple of pieces against Bakunin and you can just kind of tell that Engels has not taken any time to really understand what's going on in Italy because it's just kind of like attacks on Bakunin's character and thought that like, again, it's it, he, he, he basically just provides no like framework for what he thinks like the international should be doing and what he's seeing in the London situation and what he opposes to like Bakunin's vision. So all that, like all these people just suddenly are like, why is this guy suddenly just appearing out of nowhere and attacking the one guy that we know is as the international leader in Italy. And it just makes him look like a total idiot. And then Caffieri, after reading the Italian uh, edition of the Communist Manifesto and all this happens, basically just goes, screw it. I'm siding with Bakuna now because I think you're a crank who is obsessed with smearing and defaming this guy. Um, and this is around the time where there become the, actually the two internationals because there's the anarchist international um, that, that starts off. And um, it's also like Engels has a lot of interactions where basically whenever things aren't really going in the way that he and Marx would kind of like, he just goes like, oh, well, Italy is so peasant based that they're all backwards and they don't, they're not going to do anything. Um, which it, it, it is, as I said, it's very agrarian, but they're, 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 a lot of the agrarian stuff is like landed, is unlanded day laborers. So they're pretty much people in the process of being proletarianized. Um, they're not like the landed French peasants. Um, and, and the, yeah, a lot of the, the, the anarchists, they have a lot of problems, but they're pretty successful at building interest, especially in the north among craftsmen and uh, craftsmen, salaried workers, and and to a degree, they actually do have some in way with peasants um, in the, in the northern regions where the farm it's more like small farm holdings and less like the big Latifundia estates. Um, but uh, it, so, there, there's actually a um, quote from what's this? Is it Robert Michel, the the Italian sociologist who becomes a fascist? Is that his name? Michel Robert. Uh, Michel Robert. Oh, M Michel Robert. That's it. Yeah. Um, he he actually has like a quote where he says something like Bakuninism led to like Italian Marxism because. One of the big weird things about Italy is that it was so anarchist early on and then kind of became a huge hotbed of organized electoral communist, uh, the, one of the biggest electoral communist parties. Um, and that and that transformation has continued to kind of puzzle people about like what exactly caused the switch from one to the other. Well, I mean, it's in some ways the entire Italian political spectrum outside of the the liberals and conservatives who were marginalized after world war one uh kind of comes out of marxism i mean fascism in the italian context to be fair has at least some marxist dna through sorel through mm -hmm. i mean uh, mussolini through mussolini being in the, on the, yeah. the left um being on the map he was on the maximalist and accelerationist left i mean like mm -hmm. uh Mussolini wanted to enter World War One to destroy Italy, and it ended up like becoming to believe in Italy in the process. Mm -hmm. um, but to stay on the international, it, it it is interesting how much this this informs uh, many things. The other thing that we have to put out though is is Marx's Marx's position was very hard for people to really uh, parse because. Unlike, say, the Owenites or a lot of the British labor movement, parts of the Chartist movement, Marx does think the, 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 uh, the state is inherently classed. And so he agrees with the anarchists on that. But where he disagrees is, the, is tactically, um, 
you know, foregoing any relationship with the state or electoralism whatsoever, which is actually kind of ironic given where Marxists will sometimes go later. But that, that that's the big division is the dictatorship of the proletariat and there and then Marx and Engels's seeming relationship with the with the, with what um, Bakunin and a lot of the collectivists, as well as the Blanquias, frankly, saw as the socialist right. You know, um, the a lot of people that who you know um, the the Second International, and then the Bolsheviks and even the Mensheviks would try to get out of the socialist movement, like. The, the the what they would call the jingoist and socialist uh, chauvinist socialist, um, for example, which comes up a lot in the 20th century. But they're part of the international, you know, like they're not like there's there's a huge nationalist component to the international, which strikes us as weird because it's the international. But mm-hmm. they're very particularly in the Italian case, right? I mean, that's another thing that's hard for people to understand is how are the anarchist factions so tied in with the nationalist faction uh, mm-hmm. through Garibaldi, through their work in unifying Italy, etc. So, I mean, you explain that be, uh, in the Italian context, but it's, 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 very, it's very interesting to think about that. It's also very interesting to think a little bit about why maybe Britain and Germany dominate this process so much, not just because they're obviously, you know, two of the most developed capitalist countries um, in Europe at the time, but also that their, their, their national consolidation projects are more or less done, like way done, like, you know, been done for 200 years done. Yeah. I mean, the, the extent to which you see German, like just as a language, like the, the institution of national education methods to ensure literacy and understand Italy. If I remember, I believe this is from Hobbes Bond. Italy, like by 1870 has like 2% consistent Italian speaking population. Right. And Neapolitan like, has it, not been decided upon as a standard Italian. Like, like it, it is still like in super regional and, and people are speaking all kinds of things. And like, you know, the, the, the literacy records are, are much, much, much lower um, than, than many of the other countries that, that are, you know, uh, around at this time, it's, um, it, it's, it's an incredibly regionalized and, and uh, localized uh, area. Like, um, and I mean, this is 10 years after unification. Um, and so they, and, and I mean, the anarchist factions are not the international are not necessarily presenting a lot of their work. Like all of their propaganda is not as inherently focused on national unification in the way that it is in Germany, because, because in Germany early on, there's more of the, like, we're going to be a political party kind of effort um, where they don't really want to say that they're going to be nationally focus uh, it's one of those things where they they kind of are forced their hand is forced into being focused on this kind of like national politics while their rhetoric is attempting to focus internationally italy it's a little they're not as quite that um because they're not you know it's more just workers orgs and and secret cells and but it is interesting to look at, you know, the, the kind of the fall of the internationalist anarchist after the 70s and into the 80s, like 1870s and 1880s, is basically kind of just they keep the Italian state is so repressive that they keep basically going, all right, guys, we're going to have insurrection, we're going to have our, our secret, like, meetings and we're going to try and organize a massive insurrection across all these things because there's all these because there's a lot of like food strikes and stuff and basically the state figures it out and they you know you get a lot of events of like 200 anarchists meet up in this one place and all get arrested and they thought that 3,000 people were going to show up and help them and they don't um and then two years later they go and attempt to organize the revolt in the south and they all get arrested 
and then a night year later, like, and, and there's kind of this increasing like, oh, they, they they figured the state spied on us and figured it out. So we've got to get become more secretive and more, you know, intense in our efforts. Oh, they figured us out and they arrested us. We got to get more secret and more intensive in our efforts. And it kind of keeps, you know, doubling down on it. Um, and it's uh, kind of one of the things that sort of, and, and to, to their credit, like part of the incentive with this is also that from their understanding, the, there's so many places and regions where the, the workers are so desperate that they think everyone wants action. And if we don't do anything, we're going to lose our cred. Like people aren't going to take us seriously if we keep saying to hold off and organize more. So we're going to go and try and, and push for insurrections. And, and this leads to actually Andrea Costa, Andrea Costa, I think that's his name. Um, who is one of, yeah, Adara Costa, who is one of the anarchists in Italy. And he, like, during a period goes to one of the international meetings. That's one of, it's not like the international by this time, the international is kind of gone. But later there, there is an international meeting of all kinds of socialist uh, groupings that includes anarchists and, and it includes Liebknecht, the German representative. And, and, and at that meeting, uh, Costa, vigorously attacks electoralism and, and legalist, you know, campaigns. But he's the one that after that, um, partially because he keeps getting arrested and put into exile, kind of just goes, you know what, guys, this isn't working. And he he kind of, it, he actually is sort of the, the figure that turns and then starts making what will eventually spiral into like the first labor party um, in Italy. So it actually does come from someone who was involved in the anarchist international and just kind of after a while just thought that they weren't doing anything that was working and that they were becoming isolated, um, from actually understanding what was going on because they were more concerned because he thought that they were more concerned with kind of their internal ideas of, of insurrection and not really with what was actually like, um, happening. And, and, and during this period, you know, the idea of like propaganda of the deed initially starts out meaning more like you wait for spontaneous action to happen. When it happens, it's, you go out and participate in it, and, and more like and, the way people associate with Lo with Luxembourgism or autonomism, mm -hmm. and, and you push the communist message, you know, like the whole time, right? And as things start to get more and more uh, insulated. It starts to become this, well, maybe we need to just push for violence action. Maybe we need these kind of, it, it, it sounds like almost more vanguardist, you know, like we're, we're going to just like incite violence and, and that will show that we're serious. Um, right, which is what happened. I mean, it even happens more in Russia than in Italy with the anarchy. I mean, like mm -hmm. you think about Lenin's older brother, but like, they're, they're, the, the anarchist assassination leagues really do kick up. I mean, even in the United States, uh, like mm -hmm. that was part of the justification of the, of the first official Red Scare was these anarchist propaganda by the deed assassination leagues. But as you said, we associate propaganda by the deed with that, you know, because of how it ended with the anarchists in the mm -hmm. 19 and the late 19th century, early 20th century, not what they actually initially meant by it. Although to be fair, Bakunin kind of has it both ways in, in his writing. Yeah. So. But I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of hard. Bakunin is pretty, I mean, he has a fascinating life and he's written so much um, that I, I do kind of wish there was more concerted effort to have like a complete Bakunin works that was like more rigorously like Put it wasn't together. just like, yeah, it had like um, proper annotations and historical context like we do with Marx yeah, as opposed to like um, anarchist pamphlet zines. <laughs> yeah, like like because it, it, it really is like hard to parse like some of these debates that are going on and like all these and, and you know, like these are people who are writing in Russian and French and English and whatever, like there's tons yeah, of stuff. They're writing in a bunch of different languages and a lot of it's untranslated. I mean, even even with Marx, like, you know, some of the stuff that we lost with Marx was stuff that was published in English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and, 
And I think it's also you know, like like with Marx and Engels, sometimes it's hard to know when they were writing something that was like super confident and, and propagandistic and, and like Bakunin near the end of his life when he's dealing with Italian stuff, like he's depressed and contemplating suicide because he doesn't think anything's gonna happen anymore. Um, and Caffieri is like um, basically sending him money and when when Caffieri figures out what Bakunin is spending it on, just like in his personal life and stuff, he basically disowns him and says he's not going to deal with him anymore. Um, and, and and like this is and Bakunin is you know in his some of his writings and actions is still doing this like yeah go and do that insurrection in Italy, but like he's kind of a sad old man by that point, um, right? I, and like Caffieri too. When mm -hmm. Costa starts doing uh, this kind of electoral move, Caffieri is one of the first people that says, oh, you're, like this is just going to become an excuse to exclude people from your party. It's, he kind of, he says like, you know, this is dishonest. We don't need to educate the workers and talk to them like in some scientific manner and push for reforms. We need action of the deed. And, and when Costa starts moving more to the, the legalist route, even though Costa says that he thinks that at the end of the day, it, he, he kind of becomes like Kautskyist. Like he says, like at the end of the day, we're going to need a revolution, but like we can't push for that now. Like we have to have the, the strategy of patience. Um, when that starts to happen, Caffieri starts to double down on a lot more of the like, we need violent insurrection. We need to become really secretive. We need to have secret cells and things. And we have to make sure that the state doesn't know what we're doing. Um, and, and supposedly by the basically... Caffieri basically suffers mental breakdown and the last portion years of his life, he is just paranoid and in periods of institutionalization and then he dies. Um, but supposedly kind of right before that happens, there is a, um, uh, a one, one of the sources I've read anyway, I think it, it's the Grand's book on the history of the Italian left. Uh, he basically uh, gives uh, his blessing to uh, Costa's uh, Partito Socialista uh, Revolucionario in 1881. Which uh, is the basis so, for the Italian Socialist Party, correct? Uh, yeah. It, it, there's other figures, and uh, Filippo uh, Tarati, I think, has more influence on that specifically, but it, it is kind of the starting point for, like, now there is an attempt at, like, a party that is emerging, like, in Italy. Um, so let's so talk supposedly Caffieri kind of changes his mind and then goes nuts. Right. So you recounted the Italian context. Let's jump back over really briefly and kind of talk about what actually causes though the, the, um, the split in 72, because I mean, Marx and Engels say a lot of things about it. Like I, I've read when uh, people, when uh, Babel is asking Engels how to deal with Lasallians, uh, he uses the example of like, don't try to convert the Lasallians. We didn't try to convert the collectivists because we would have carried their errors into the international and it was better to let it split than, you know, um, than it being a false unity that corrupted the workers or whatever. I mean, that's basically his logic to, to Babel, but it, it's interesting to me how the Paris commune does seem to be, um, the flashpoint where you can't deny how profound the separation is anymore, particularly when Bakunin and Marx give their postmortems in um, and, and 1771 at the Hague Conference. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Hague Conference is really the, like, you know, if you read any history of, like, the international, there's going to be a whole one to maybe three chapters on the Hague Conference and what what happens. Um, especially just because I mean, uh, the most I, famous and, literature comes out of that too. Like the most famous, like both the Brumaire and uh, Bakunin's response to Marx, which is they're both quoted over and over and over again. They both come out of that conference. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, and I think it's important to realize like Marx and Engels are both suspicious of Bakunin by this period because um, they they're accusing him of trying to establish a secret cell in the international. That is separate from the you know the subcommittees, um, with the intention of basically taking over 
Um, and it's hard to know my, if he was or wasn't, frankly. Yeah. What from my understanding, what I've seen, Bakunin does write about having a secret cell um, of like close Confederates. I don't think he ever put it into act. Like it, the the one thing I remember reading was someone was saying like, yeah, this seems kind of like his like ideal fantasy that no one took seriously, and even his associates didn't really like have anything to do with. And like most of his interactions with like people in Switzerland was just that he was involved in like like early Union stuff. Um, at the same time, though. Uh, like I kind of mentioned, like Bakunin is involved in much more serious secretive cell work in other times across the European situation. Like, especially in his later times when he's in Italy, like he does have stuff that, again, like I, I, I've seen Carl Levy and other anarchist historians be like, yep, he was doing this. Um, and it was usually built around a kind of like a model of like, it had a public element that was kind of like the propagandizing and organizing activist element. And then it had like a secretive cell element that was much more theorizing the insurrection and stuff. So, so it is complicated because, you know, I, I, on the one hand, it's like, I think Marx and Engels overstated how much Bakunin was like trying to subvert the entire international with some conspiracy of equals. On the other hand, people that just go, Oh, but, that one didn't exist. It's like, yeah, but Bakunin did actually have other organizations besides that one that he was being accused of over his lifetime um, that did have some harmful elements towards its the operation of... Um, uh, it, it just had some serious strategic and tactical mistakes overall. Well, I mean, I think the Sergei uh, uh, and Nikayev um, con controversy where Bakunin endorses, you know, that guy and his catechism of the revolutionary in, in 1869 and how that all plays out and like the bears communism suicide cult that we won't see again until like the 1970s when you start seeing that stuff happen again. Um, that was pretty discrediting and did make Marx and Engels look good in retrospect, but the, the, the international had already split by that point. Um, <laughs> And it didn't survive splitting. I mean, like the international was only around for what four more years formally after the split. The 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 um, the the red international as opposed to the black international. Um, so I, I do think there's there's an interesting lesson there. What but is, what's also interesting is basically as you kind of map out, they end up doing the same things like like the the. The Red International, you know, gets in gets in its legalist and illegalist factions, and then kind of liquidates into, um, you know, the Revolutionary Socialist Party, and then the I mean the Black International, excuse me, and then the and then the German parts of the of the International liquidate into um, the Proto SPD and the SPD. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who's like super hardcore defensist about like, we've got to, you know, we've got to be a political party that enters elections in the state and stuff. Like that's not something that I, I hold to as like a major principle of, of strategy or anything. But I do think that people who are radically inclined need to need to think more seriously about what the incentives for that, mode were in a period of nationalization um, beyond just assuming that it was like these like singular heroic actors that like one side was like, no, we need political entries. And the other was like, no, we don't need like, you know, like, like the conditions of a political party are, are much more complex than that. There's a pretty good piece called variations in socialism the rise of a political labor movement in Britain and Germany by Christian Eisenberg. That is a, a comparison of how the, um, the, the German movement with the, the ADAV and stuff uh, would eventually kind of manage to stick around despite being smaller than the British Chartalist movement. Um, Cause the British Chartalist movement was huge. Yeah. 
and gigantic. It was like the it, bulk of the international at one point. Yeah, and it kind of just faded away. Um, and, and one of the reasons, at least this person argues, is you have to take seriously about like the incentives to stick around for a long time in a political, a politicized movement where members in the politicized movement gets to have a say in elections and and the the institutions um, in ways that just certain you know localized regionalized urban neighborhood cells even if they are operating with a somewhat unified platform like with regards to suffrage and stuff like there does seem to be a certain dynamic about what has more long longevity at least in this period with the rise of nationalism. I'm not going to say that it makes a lot of sense that like, and you know, cause like, I, again, like I don't know that this necessarily means that like, if you can go out and really start a political party, it's going to be more um, stable and long lasting. Cause we're not in a period where like nationalization and stuff is solidifying that, that kind of interest in how you participate anymore. But I, I think it's a question and a matter of interest that is much more complex and people don't look at very well. And that's a good note for us to end on. Uh, I would tell people to stick around if you're patrons that we in patron episode where we talk about the parallel to this 100 years later in Italy. Um, during the heyday of Operismo, Autonomia, Operation Gladio, and the Years of Lead, also known as the fun times. Um, <laughs> Uh, or, or as I like to call it, holy shit, that happened? Question yeah. mark. Because um, <laughs> in Italy, there's a lot of what? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get... How many people got there. their kneecaps um, blown off? But, <laughs> like, did anyone blow anyone up but themselves? Uh, question mark. <laughs> um, actually, in Italy... They were they yeah, had better yeah. aim than most of the rest of the violent parts of the new left, but um, but anyway, um, so we're gonna talk about that in the parrot room. I hope you enjoyed this um, particular dive into the first international and particularly into the Italian part of it, which is kind of not covered. Even I, I find that even anarchists don't cover it very well because it also doesn't really support their narrative. I mean, like you know if. If 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 the Red International still becomes the basis of Italian Marxism, it's very hard to make certain kinds of arguments. Um, and I'll see you in a moment.